This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Glad you're with me. Hey, what can I say about the federal election? I don't know how many people are even engaged. I mean, it seems like the spread of the Delta variant, uh, the Canadian and Afghans uh, who supported the Canadian forces who have been left behind have topped the news headlines. Oh, so has the politicization of the pandemic for political gain. And the revelations contained in Jody Wilson-Raybould's new book have received far more uh, attention than the latest platform promises. But more about that in just a moment. Because I've got ace analyst Lance Roberts coming up. And I got to ask him, can we really deficit spend forever, given all the debt, global debt, national debt? I mean, can central banks even let interest rates rise? And what should we as individuals do in this environment? I'm also going to talk about One of the monster investment growth areas, cybersecurity. I've got insider Ian Patterson. He's a CEO of Pluralock to chat with about that. Plus, I've got a truly shocking stat. I just got the latest poll results in the States, and I'm telling you, they are going to surprise you. Plus, a great quote of the week and a goofy that's bound to infuriate some people, I'm sure. But I've also got Ozzy Jurek on where real estate money is really going right now. And Victor Darren, what's up with gas prices? I got Michael Levy with some good news on the employment front, and that may impact your wages, by the way. But first, the election that few people wanted during rising concerns over the Delta variant uh, caseloads is all but over. The prime minister said it's necessary because of some important issue that could impact generations to come. And yet, we sure didn't talk about them. I mean, we got attack ads, yes. We got empty promises of free this and free that based on the deficits don't matter siren call of modern monetary theory, but we didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about serious issues like proposed censorship in Bill C-10 and Bill C-36. No, we didn't talk about the world's number one geopolitical issue, the continued aggression of China either, let alone practical steps for economic recovery. And by the way, if you're not sure or concerned about increasing government censorship, consider that Canada's leading expert on internet law, Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, calls Bill C-10 stunning, dangerous, inexcusable. But we didn't talk about it. Ontario Civil Liberties Association calls Bill C-36, in quotes, a law that grossly violates the fundamental human rights of expression. Hey, still not an issue. As for economic growth, Arguably the most important issue facing Canada today during, you know what, during the campaign, I hear advocates for a variety of government programs. Maybe it was subsidized daycare or free pharmacare, but they seem completely unaware that the ability to deliver more services is directly impacted by economic growth. As I often mention, can't think of a single issue that's advanced by a weak economy, yet there's no sign that's understood by many in the public and the majority of our politicians. Certainly not discussed, though. Forgive me for repeating this, but you won't hear it in many other places. One of the keys to our future is going to be our ability to reverse the decline in capital investment in Canada from current generational lows. And that goes hand in hand with the problem that we've had this consistent decline in Canada's competitiveness rankings. But it wasn't discussed. And you know what? I'm actually at a loss to understand why. The fact that serious issues weren't discussed during the campaign underlines sentiment that this was an unnecessary election, cost of $600 million. I mean, what do we get for $600 million? Well, seems like we got a more divided country. 
The essence of the election is a referendum on more government control, more regulation and intervention in the economy and society as a whole. Prime Minister himself stated, build back better's agenda's goal, which is borrowed directly from the World Economic Forum, is to reimagine capitalism through increased government intervention and regulation, including regulation of free speech. That's what should have been discussed and debated, but wasn't. The campaign was more about protecting the government status quo, the individuals and groups on the receiving end of hundreds of billions of government money, including the media. I mean, there's been no talk whatsoever of Auditor General's findings of tens of billions of tax dollars wasted. But it's more than that. We have a healthcare system that was just ranked by the Commonwealth Fund 10th out of 11 countries, and no one dared talk about changes to healthcare. I mean, guess who would dare, I guess, with the fear-mongering that would be immediate by cynical politicians, enabled by, I think, the media who does not think things through too often. But 10th out of 11th? Well, that's not going to change without an honest discussion and one that's not inhibited by fear-mongering for political advantage. You know what? This election was far more noteworthy for what wasn't discussed than by what was. As Judy Wilson-Raybould talked about in her new book, all the promises of a new way of doing politics have been obliterated. In a resignation letter, she stated, Federal politics is, in my view, increasingly a disgraceful triumph of harmful partisanship over substantive action. It's easy to make the case that there was no substantive action. I mean, all talk, no action. I mean, come on, we've had no meaningful reduction in CO2 emissions, no reconciliation with First Nations. Heck, there's still a substantial problem with safe drinking water. Sexual harassment in the media was covered up for at least two years until Global TV broke the story in February. Capital investment, our competitive ranking, well, it continues to decline to a generational low. I mean, keep in mind, before the pandemic, economic growth was hovering around a dismal 1%. I don't see any plan to actually reverse that trend. You know what? The new way of doing politics seems a heck of a lot like the old ways. I've been looking forward to chatting with Lance Roberts. He is the chief economic and investment strategist at RIA Advice. And you can find them, by the way, at realinvestmentadvice.com. Lance, appreciate you taking time with us. I I got so many things to talk about, but I want to start with the big picture that people are concerned about. I don't care whether you're in Canada, whether you're in the United States. We watch this attitude that many describe as modern monetary theory, that deficits don't matter. I mean, we've been just going through an election campaign here, and my goodness, Santa Claus feels like a skin flint compared to what we're getting promised and none of it with how you're going to pay for it. It's all deficit financing. Can you give us your take on that? I just actually published an article on this this morning uh, on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com called, you know, deficit deniers, 40 years of economic erosion. And, you know, it's interesting. The primary thesis is that we're running a, 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 a couple of trillion dollar deficit now that's going to expand a lot more if the Democrats here in the U.S. have their way of passing another four or five trillion dollars worth of spending on top of our annual spending that we currently do. And the theory is that, well, deficits don't matter because we haven't cracked, you know, the, the economy hasn't completely fallen apart. We're not Weimar Germany just yet. And that's really a, a, not a, a correct way to look at it because, you know, deficits don't occur just overnight. We didn't wake up yesterday morning with a $2 trillion deficit. 
this has been occurring for 40 years. So when you go back and look at economic trends, whether it's economic growth, the value of the dollar, inflationary trends, um, you know, take a look at what's happened with underlying assets uh, uh, kind of across the board. And more importantly, you know, the capital formation within the economy has all eroded over the last 40 years. You know, we used to grow at six, seven, eight percent rates of economic growth. Now we grow at two. If we're lucky, inflationary pressures have 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 been on a very sharp elevation since really 1980 when we began running deficits. Now, the year over year rates of change seem small. But if you look at the actual trend of inflation pre and post deficit, there's been a very sharp increase, which is why the average American has trouble making ends meet because the cost of living outstrips what their incomes are. And that's why they go into debt on average about $4,000 a year just to keep their cost of living the same, not increase it, not improve it, just to pay for what they have. Well, we've had a similar, the inflation number just came out here for August, highest in eight years. 4.1% here running. Uh, anybody who's gone to the gas pump knows what I'm talking about, gone to the grocery store. Uh, and that's still not the whole story, because as you know, uh, governments like to kind of tinker with how they measure inflation, and it's not including asset inflation. You know, so that's that's obviously where we're seeing it manifested in a great way. But the bottom line, I think, for people are Many one of the many bottom lines is they want to know how is it impacting us? Well, as you say, your dollar doesn't buy as much. But the other side is the interest rate side. And it's a straightforward question. Can they ever let interest rates go up again? Well, the question is, let me ask you, let me turn the question around on you real quick, because if the entire economy is debt financed, which in the U.S. primarily it is, I mean, you know, people have taken on a tremendous amount of debt to their income ratios. And again, when you look at a lot of the economic ratios in, in the U.S. economy in particular, it says that debt to income ratios have fallen over the last few years or the income to cash flow ratios have improved, et cetera. Those are all skewed by the top 10 percent of income earners. If you strip that top 10 percent of income earners out, the underlying you know, financial situation of the vast majority of Americans is very, very poor, heavily leveraged, incomes not keeping up with cost of living adjustments, et cetera. Uh, so the real fundamental underpinnings of the economy are very weak. So to your question, how can interest rates go up if you have a, an economy that's 70 percent driven by consumption? How can interest rates go up when everything that consumers are doing to just make ends meet, as we said before, they've got to go $4,000 a year into debt. How can they do that if payments keep going up? So interest rates can't go up. Houses, if interest rates go up, people stop buying houses. They stop refinancing homes. If interest rates go up, they stop buying cars. If interest rates go up, they, they stop charging on the credit cards because they can't afford the payments. I mean, there's only so much income coming in and if interest rates go up, that strips more out of their income coming in, going away to interest payments, which means they can't support their standard of living. Terrible for the economy. So, no, rates can't go up. Well, we've come, of course, uh, we're not out of a pandemic, of course. Uh, but right now, it looks like small business has just one example. has $139 billion estimated in debt. This is after massive government subsidies up here. Uh, you know, uh, we've got record deficits, uh, $500 billion over just two years. Uh, you know, people now the problem is part of that money that the government spent had has targeted the wrong people. Like it's in fact, it's incredible about out of every dollar the government sent so-called to help pandemic, 86 cents went to people who weren't financially impacted. Only 14 percent 
uh, you know, 14 cents on the buck made it to people who were. So there's another example. We've also got mortgage, you know, huge jump in mortgage growth because the real estate market fueled by the record low debt. I mean, it's so all I'm saying, it's a very similar situation, I guess, throughout the Western world uh, where these record low rates, it's kind of interesting. Uh, and, you know, there's there's certainly needed to help people out. I'm not saying that, but it wasn't targeted. But now we come to this spot. And then that's really the point is where are we at today? Uh, you know, we can discuss what happened, how we got here. But uh, yeah, and that's what I look at, um, you know, Federal Reserve, of course, which is the dominant force. But I look at the Bank of Canada. I don't know how they can let interest rates go up because, first of all, government debt becomes unaffordable. You know, I mean, it's a very direct cost. Yeah, no, it's it, and it's interesting because again, you know, this is this is the misnomer here in the United States in particular, which is, you know, just recently the House and the Senate passed the 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure bill, and now everybody's haggling over this three and a half trillion dollar spending bill. So you know, most people are looking at it's like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna spend another four trillion, five trillion dollars of government spending. No, 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 no. That's only the the additional spending they want to do. That doesn't include the four trillion a year it takes just to run the government, and that increases by eight percent a year because we don't pass a budget anymore. We just do continuing resolutions, so it's the same money as last year plus eight percent. Um, uh, over one hundred cents on the dollar of tax revenue. Now this is the twenty twenty was the first year this occurred. Twenty twenty one will be the second, but for the first time in history, it now takes more than 100 cents on the dollar of every tax dollar collected just to pay for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, prescription drug benefits, and interest on the debt. That is never So that means all the other spending comes out of debt. And so if interest rates go up, that means that just takes more tax revenue just to pay interest on the debt. And this is a huge problem for the government. I'm so glad you brought that up. It's like you're reading my notes because that is one of my biggest concerns, what you've just outlined. And that is, as you say, for the first time last year, you take all the money that the federal government in the U.S. is taking in, and it just covers basically entitlements and defense spending and interest. So everything else, you know, when they talk about a new program, this or that, all of that is, as you just said, uh, comes out of borrowing. I mean, they have to deficit finance. You know, I looked historically at that, and that doesn't end well. I looked at 51 different examples you know, when you look others, and I know it's different, you know, sometimes be careful of what you're comparing. But when you see all 50 out of 51 having the problem, well, that gives you a hint. And, and I guess the question then becomes, what does that mean to investors? Uh, do you hide in stocks because that's private sector versus the public sector problems? And, you know, I'm, I'm looking, sorry, I'm going on too, too long, but I know the pension problems in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, the U.S. still sets the tone for uh, Canadian markets, European markets, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, uh, what, what is it? What do individuals do about this? Well, this comes back to, you know, look, when it comes to individuals and investing, you know, there's the long term view and then there's what's happening right now. And one thing that we've talked a lot here recently, because, again, we we deal a lot with people that have money set aside for retirement. And and those are mostly the assets that we manage for individuals. And they're very concerned, rightly so, about the valuations in the markets, the deviations from long term trends. If you look at the price of the stock market right now relative to its long-term exponential growth trend going all the way back to 1900, it has never been this deviated from that long-term trend. And in order to have a trend, you have to trade both above and below that trend at some point. 
So there is going to be a massive reversion in asset prices at some point. But again, you know, for investors, you have to stay invested in the market. You have to manage what's going on right now because missing gains in the market is just as bad for your financial outcome as riding through an entire correction process. So you have to manage the risk in your portfolio, but you have to participate regardless of the environment we're in. But this is a very, but having said that, let me say that this is a very dangerous environment for investors. We have a tremendous amount of speculation in the markets. You have record number of IPOs and SPACs being issued into the markets. Wall Street does that when there is the highest premium value being paid in the markets. They don't issue IPOs at the bottom of bear markets. They issue IPOs at the top of bull markets. In other words, as Jack Nicholson once said, you know, this is as good as it gets. And this is what we're seeing in the markets. This will end. It will end badly. But you have to be aware of the environment that we're in. There is a lot of danger here. Um, but again, it's, it's, as you correctly said, the Fed has pushed interest rates to zero. High yield corporate bonds are trading at levels they should not be trading at. You know, there is no yield outside of the stock market. So this is the, the Federal Reserve and their ongoing monetary programs have forced investors into the riskiest asset class out there just to try to make some return on money. And that's a very dangerous situation. The other side that, and that's great advice, by the way, uh, the other side that gets people questioning things is, okay, so they print up all this money. I mean, it's like money doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? Money was originally supposed to be in exchange uh, for uh, uh, goods. I mean, the original bills of exchange where I had lumber, you had sheep, and we got a middleman in there to guarantee we both have it, and we'd make that exchange. Well, it's lost its meaning when they say we can, in the state's case, uh, produce $6 trillion out of thin air. You know, in Canada's case, about a half trillion out of thin air. But here's the question. A lot of people are surprised that hasn't been reflected in, say, silver prices or gold prices. Um, I just <laughs> you're hitting all my good topics here lately. I just wrote an article about what's wrong with gold and mm -hmm. that 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 is effectively the, the question here. What is wrong with gold? Why isn't gold soaring through the roof right now? When you have this unprecedented level of monetary printing, you've got this un, un, un level, you know, unprecedented level of debt, and you've got inflationary pressures. I mean, this should be the moment that gold is shining as brightly as it ever has in history, and it's not. And the reason is simply because there is no fear in the markets right now. So there is no reason for individuals to take on a fear trade or what we call a safety trade in this market right now because asset prices just go up every day. So why do I want to own something silly like gold? You know, it's, you know, long-term gold is a valuable asset class relative to your overall asset allocation. There are periods and the, and it's, it's interesting as to what periods these are, but the, there are periods where gold does not perform well. It doesn't keep up with inflation. It doesn't hedge against risk. When are those periods? 1990 to, to 2000 and the last five years in particular for gold. But that's during this midst of extremely strong bull markets where there is no fear of loss because, again, I can buy anything and it just goes up. I and mean, you've got millennials uh, and Gen Zers, you know, trading on Robinhood, buying stocks that yeah. have no fundamental value, and they just double every day. So, you know, that's why gold's not working now. But if I was a betting man, um, I and, and I'm not, but I manage money, so I guess it's the same thing. <laughs> um, but if you know, at, at some point, gold is going to play a very valuable part of your portfolio.
Yeah, I really agree with that. I think, uh, you know, that old story, and I, I never used to be actively part of the old story. You've got to have it as a hedge. I felt that much more so in the last year, you know, that it's sort of a quiet part of my portfolio, just sit in the corner. I'm not looking for it. I'm not, you know, I've got stocks if I want growth. I've got real estate if I want growth, you know, that kind of stuff. I've, I've got it as a, because I, I think you've, you've really nailed it there when you say, when people start losing confidence, that's, that's always been my key on any of the markets. Start losing confidence, get a little fear, and the move will be startling. It will be abrupt. In the same way, on the positive side, let's say, when everybody became enamored with uh, the tech stocks just over a year ago or a year and a half ago, and boy, the move isn't sort of by ladder. You know, it's it's a straight up kind of parabolic push, you know, there. That, and that leads me to my last sort of question when I look inside the market, Lance, okay. is people better be careful. There is the market as a monolith, but when you start looking inside you've got to also be in the right groups. Like we've been a big commodity, uh, you know, in money talks, I talk commodities, I think before anyone else did, you know, uh, and I looked at the renewable push, I looked at electric vehicle push, and I looked at, you know, seven years of no capital investment, you know, demand meeting no capital investment and supply is going to do good things. Right. Uh, but I look inside now and I'm, I'm, I'm watching with real interest how there's been some pretty good corrections in technology. And I'm thinking Tesla jumps to mind for me. Right. And, and it's, what's really interesting, and, and, and you know, I, look, I've managed money now for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was through the crash in 87. I saw the crash in 99. I saw the crash in 2008. And I wasn't just on the outside looking in. I was managing assets through these periods. And, you know, you learn valuable lessons about bear markets when they come along. And that's one of the interesting things right now with especially millennials and Gen, Gen Zers in particular. Gen Zers in 2008 were between the ages of five and 16. They've never seen a, a bear market of consequence. So, yeah, this market certainly seems like one that'll never go down. But this is, but you know, this has been one of the the last two years in particular have been the, really two of the toughest years for me as an asset manager that I've ever been in because not because of trying to find things to buy. It's because the rotation is happening so quickly in the markets. You know, one day it's technology stocks, the next day it's uh, reflation stocks, and and literally. From one day to the next, we kind of joke in our office, is today going to be a Dow day or a NASDAQ day? And it's almost that way. Money is, is moving in so rapidly. We've had the largest inflows into the markets ever in history. Not surprising with $120 billion a month from the Fed coming in. But money's just trying to find something to buy. And you're seeing this really not just in the asset market. You're seeing it also in the art market. You're seeing you know things like NFTs, you know, these non-fungible tokens uh, and Bitcoin and all these other kind of ethereal asset classes that are just being ramped up because it's literally the old saying, there's too much money chasing too few assets. And this rotation is very hard to manage. If you, you know, it's interesting, <clears throat> excuse me. It's interesting when they, they tell investors, oh, you should just buy and hold. The problem with that is this money's rotating so fast through the markets now that if you're not almost trading assets, you're leaving a lot of money left on the table. And that makes it a very tough environment as for me as a portfolio manager to manage assets in. And I can't imagine how it is for the individuals that's just trying to do this, you know, you know, on a kind of a amateur basis. I just you come back. I got to finish with this. So as I come back to that's why all eyes are on the Federal Reserve, you know, the most powerful People in the land, whether you're talking Canada, 
uh, or you're talking the U.S. is who's running the central banks. And, and you won't uh, probably be aware of this, Lance, uh, from where you are. We had, uh, of course, the federal election, but we had the prime minister actually say he doesn't think about monetary policy. Now, you got a picture from some guy like me. That's pretty tough to hear when you've described exactly what's going down. We will all be watching, you know, central banks, the level of money creation, the level of debt they're buying from governments. Because, uh, boy, if the market decides to be spooked by that, we can have some really active times. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Lance, yeah. I want to thank you for taking the time as usual. I, I just love getting the chance to talk. And I want to tell people to go to realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com, because uh, you go to the site, you can click on Lance's blog there. You can click on the newsletter and keep up to date with his thoughts at realinvestmentadvice.com. Lance, uh, Lance, thanks a million, which isn't really worth very much anymore, but thanks a million. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much. Time now for this week's shocking stat. Now, I'm going to leave the polling in Canada till after the election. Instead, let's turn our attention to some shocking poll results in the U.S. Now, if you think Americans were angry during the Trump years, wait till you hear these numbers from a new CNN poll conducted between August 3rd and September 7th. The bottom line, and keep in mind, this is after the federal government spent upwards of $6 trillion and a lot of it in checks sent directly to individuals. You got the economy mostly open, freedom of movement restored, at least to a much greater degree than a year ago. And this is still what the majority of the public said. The poll found 74% of U.S. adults now say they are very or somewhat angry about the way things are going in the U.S. today. That includes 88% of Republicans, 70% of independents, but still 67% of Democrats are saying they are very or somewhat angry. 69% of U.S. adults now say that things are going pretty or very badly. That includes, again, 91% of Republicans, 72% of independents, but still 49% of Democrats. I mean, one of the big issues continues to be illegal immigration. The CNN survey also found that 77% of U.S. adults say it is important that the federal government stops the movement of undocumented immigrants into the U.S., of which Boy, virtually all Republicans, 95% agreed, 76% of independents, but still 52% of Democrats agreed. Now, look, these are important statistics. You've got to remember, one of the main themes on Money Talks is to sort of chronicle the continued decline in confidence in government. I mean, why? Because it has huge impact, not just economically and in investment markets, but socially and politically. We've seen that, the evidence of that really for the last 10 years. The Trump Victory in 2016, I think, was a manifestation of that. We're seeing it worldwide, by the way. But it's important to chronicle the continued decline in confidence in government. I mean, the big question is, in what direction is it going to go? And that's the essence of what this show focuses on. I love to be able to talk about some good news, especially on the employment front, as it's so uneven throughout the country, uh, different professions. Uh, some people don't want to work, but we've got some good news. I'm going to bring Michael Levy in. Mike, I'm sure you caught the story, but uh, boy, one of the big things coming out of the pandemic, of course, is online shopping. One of the big, biggest beneficiaries got to be Amazon. Man, they're out there looking for thousands of workers. Absolutely, Mike. They're actually going to hire 15,000 employees across Canada this fall. They're going to increase wages. And by the way, uh, they are 
going to take a bit of a bite out of your paycheck too. Well, let's talk about that because there's two things going on here. Is uh, Well, one of the biggest confusing aspects, by the way, of the pandemic has to be the number of job openings and businesses going wanting for employees. One of the ramifications, though, is you're seeing wages going up and it looks like Amazon is jumping in with both feet in increasing wages to even unskilled work. Yeah, they are, Mike. And boy, what a turnaround when you and I, because we've been talking a long time about wages. And uh, when we were talking about going to minimum wage or $10 an hour, $11 an hour, and then $15 an hour, well, Amazon has just knocked the stuffing out of these lower minimum wages. Uh, They are going to start the new employees in Canada at seven, between 17 and $21.65 an hour. That's the start and their current wage is around $16 a, an hour, Mike. And existing employees are going to receive an additional $1.60 to $2.20 an hour. That starts immediately. So that's a significant change, a significant swing. Let's talk a little bit about the impact, though, that that can also have because it's a, as I said, it's a competition for workers, at least in some sectors right now, that companies are going begging. Well, when Amazon turns around and says, well, work for us. And, you know, as you say, we're going to start you at 17 bucks, maybe as much as 2165. That could have a spillover effect to other businesses looking to compete for those same workers. Well, two, two things here, Mike. First of all, Amazon currently has 25,000 employees. They're going to add 15,000 to make it 40. But there was a BNN, 40,000, a BNN Bloomberg survey of nearly 45,000 employers, that's companies, across 43 countries showed 69% reported difficulty filling roles. That's a 15-year high. So it's not just endemic to Canada or Canada, the U.S. This is a problem globally. Yeah. And as I say, and that's been sort of confusing. Now, part of it can be, by the way, geographical. Like, for example, uh, you've got one province wanting workers and the ones who are unemployed are in another you know, section of the country. So, I mean, that can be some of the explanation. Others, it can be that we do have uh, government benefits that still continued into October. So some people are making the choice not to work and they have maybe a variety of reasons for that, but they're still making that choice. But it's, it is, it's, as I say, it's a good news story, at least when Amazon comes in here, as you say, it's across the world, but Amazon comes into Canada. I mean, I don't know, how many warehouses do these guys have already in Canada? Because I keep hearing <laughs> reports is they're about to build another warehouse. But I mean, their presence is huge. They have 46 warehouses right now and uh, warehouses, logistics and uh, facilities, delivery facilities, compared with 30 in the mid 2020. So they're really expanding that. But Mike, I think where you went in the first place is when wages go up, we were talking about inflation last week, week before, when wages go up, the cost of what you want to buy goes up. Mm -hmm. And of course, inflation is a big story, 4.1% in August, 18 year high. But that's the kind of thing when you talk to or review the literature on economics, and they'll say when wages move and energy costs move, that underpins 
the sort of whether it's transitory or not, it's not transitory when wages go up permanently. And when energy prices go up, they're never permanent. But when they do go up, it puts upward pressure. But I want to come back to just one quick thing is, Mike, I've got to tell you to get a life. Anyone who knew how many warehouses Amazon has off the top of their head has got to get a life. But good for you. Uh, well, Mike, it just amazes me that Amazon has shifted the whole way we look at entry-level jobs, the whole way we look at beginning kids coming out of university, summer jobs. Amazon is hiring. If you just turn on the radio in Vancouver, in Calgary, in Edmonton, in Toronto, even the radio ads for people who listen to the radio, Amazon is hiring. And not only are they hiring and paying, they're also giving full benefits from the start. That never, you, you, you used to have to be with a company and earn the right to get benefits. They're giving benefits also. So it's very significant impact. Yeah, back to it's the competition for labor. This could ripple through the rest of the economy for other workers, you know, as people, our vacancies are high in certain industries across the country. In the meantime, Mike, go out and have a terrific weekend. Thanks for taking the time with us. Time now for the quote of the week. Actually, I've got three for you. And appropriately, given the federal election, all three deal with leadership. Now, I'm sure you have your own take on what makes a great leader. One that jumps out to me immediately is they walk the walk, not just talk the talk. But maybe in this age of virtue signaling, I'm in the minority. But as I said, we'll all have our opinions. But here are three. The first from former U.S. president, head of the Allied Forces in World War II, Dwight D. Eisenhower, in quotes, the supreme quality for leadership is unquestionably integrity. Without it, no real success is possible, no matter whether it's on a section gang, a football field, in an army, or in an office. The second from legendary investor Warren Buffett. In looking for people to hire, you look for three qualities, integrity, intelligence, and energy. And if you don't have the first, the other two will kill you. And finally, Martin Luther King's criteria for leadership, in quotes, may I stress the need for courageous, intelligent, and dedicated leadership, leaders of sound integrity, leaders not in love with publicity, but in love with justice, leaders not in love with money, but in love with humanity, leaders who can subject their particular egos to the greatness of the cause. Those are great thoughts, at least when we come to selecting who's going to lead the country. You can have your own list but I thought hearing from these three was valuable. I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in here now. Ozzy, I want to talk about our link, a couple of stories here, but one back to last week. And one of the things, of course, we're in the last uh, days of an election campaign. Parties roll out these platforms talking about uh, affordable housing, et cetera, which, again, you and I talked about last week saying, well, guess what? There's three levels of government involved. It's not just a federal issue. But here's the bigger thing. What I saw, and I had many economists agree with me, some of the stuff they do will actually increase the cost of housing. Because when you only go on the demand side and not the supply side, per se, you've got a problem that has been with us literally for a decade or more. No question about it. And the crazy thing is, we, I was at a large new opening of a, of a fabulous newer building called 1515 last week. And I had a chance to talk to some of Vancouver's biggest developers. And they're saying, well, it can take us seven years to build a high rise. So here's the question we need to, we need the affordability, we need the building, we need product. 
and then the government regulations adding 25 to 35 percent of the costs uh, to uh, to the building and it takes forever to get the approvals yeah. and and the thing is nobody works together here we have the province put in rent controls we have the city increasing costs and like we discussed last week so what's an investor going to do well he's looking for options and that's the other side I wanted to talk about, because uh, obviously the headlines uh, are about residential real estate virtually all of the time. But there's been massive movement in uh, industrial, uh, commercial real estate. And yes, there's a lot of reasons for them. But I think one of them is investors saying, you know what, these aren't the ones that are being targeted by government. So I'm going to put my money there. That's right. And as government thinks, well, we leave commercial alone, then we, 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 uh, we're doing a good job for the economy. So the reasons probably are good. But to my great surprise, the CBRE report uh, has a Canadian investment market view. And they said Metro Vancouver achieved a record high in the second quarter. Commercial sales and a record high in the second quarter. Are you kidding me? And what about, yeah, well, that's what I've been looking at is just a couple of those numbers. I mean, including it wasn't uh, obviously, you know, one of the things that changed about the real estate market. It's no longer just, uh, it doesn't matter which category we're talking. It was no longer we're just talking about Toronto and Vancouver per se, and maybe Montreal, maybe Hamilton, you know, some areas. I mean, I'm looking at the movement, for example, in commercial real estate in Edmonton. I'm looking at it in Calgary. Yeah. And, you know, look, at first of all, we had a record in 2018. Well, we surpassed that record. It's a $50 billion, without mergers and acquisition, $50 full year investment total. Uh, is, it's on track to achieve that. Most of the cost was in Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal, but Edmonton was $721 million. Calgary posted $619 million. And that evening in Calgary, also there was a $1.2 billion sale of the bow. Office Tower downtown, which is just sort of at the end of the second quarter, came in as well. So when you look at that, the investors, industrial was about $4 billion in the quarter, multifamily almost $4 billion, and ICI land about $3 billion. So the crazy sector is also that the retail sector had investment volumes of $2 billion, which was a surprise to me. So a lot of money from Canadian investors, from real estate investment trusts and operating companies, they're all piling into commercial real estate. And again, I would come back to things like uh, there's no foreigner restrictions, for example, uh, compared to a residential. We've got, uh, you know, in British Columbia, you already have foreign restrictions in Ontario, have them. But the federal government talking about them at the federal level, both uh, conservatives, uh, liberals, and I believe the NDP all talking about that. Well, there's no restrictions of that sort when you look at commercial and industrial. So, bang, you probably get some foreign investment in there, too. Well, that's the crazy thing. Foreign investors increased their purchasing activity in the second quarter for, for just under 8% of the national volume. I think about 8% of all investment comes from outside. The interesting thing is with all this talk about banning foreign investors, we had a meeting on, on Monday night of the Real Estate Action Group. There's 110 people there. And somebody says, you know, I got a lot of property in Palm Springs and my friends were all there. What if the Americans all of a sudden says we ban you foreigners in, in our country and we'll charge you 20 percent? He says we, we'd, be, we'd be scared to death. Why do we do this to people? Well, again, it's a hot button political issue. And again, they don't deal with the real cause, which is supply, which comes right down to the municipal level, regulations, density, that kind of stuff. It's at the provincial level and at the, you know, the federal level. I think where federal politicians set themselves up for failure is they ignore those other two levels, at least during the campaign. They pretend they've got a magic wand 
one that hasn't worked in decades, but they're going to wave the magic wand and solve this problem, and it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's, I put on my Ozbuzz, uh, at ozbuzz.ca, I put in the three parties platforms as far as real estate is concerned. You look at the platforms, all looks so good. It all tries to push some by somebody's buttons, the tenants' buttons. At the, 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 always some some guilty party that we can hate. Uh, in actual fact, landlords and tenants are pitted against each other. It's developers, the evil. Everybody is. But reality is, these are similar platforms to 2019. They're similar platforms to four years earlier. And we don't get it done because precisely what you're saying, they don't feel to, they don't work together. It's crucial that there's somebody takes it and says, look, you're the provincial guy, you're the city guy, and this is the federal guy. We put you in a room and we don't let you out. You know, like we lock the door until you come up and say, okay, this is what we can do. The city says, create more. You're, you're a stupid guy. You're putting in, um, you don't put in laneway homes. Then you put in a laneway home and they take away a third of your capital free gain exemption. Or they're saying, put in more um, more housing units. Well, the zoning isn't there for it. Or we put in the zoning, but you lose all of the, you know, there's, it has to get together because people act in their own best interest, which is what we want them to do. But sometimes it's really, really difficult. Well, as I say, we'll get the election results, but I don't think we're getting any result for the housing until exactly what you've just said transpires. Three levels of government get together with the goal of increasing supply, make a distinction between social housing and affordable housing. The list just goes on and on. And so far, they haven't accomplished much. Ozzy, that you have, people just have to go, and I'm glad you mentioned it. Go to ozbuzz.ca, check out the three major parties Real estate platforms, the Green Party did not present one. Uh, so look at the NDP, the Liberals and the Conservatives. But really think about the details that you need. Think about the impact of that and think about the impact on supply. Is it there or is it not? We'll have more chances to talk about it, Ozzy, as we get the election results. But in the meantime, ozbuzz.ca, have a great weekend. Thanks, Mike. And remember that I remember when Halloween was the scariest night of the year. Now it's election night. people are always looking for growth areas and which section or which industry to be involved in when one i'm very proud to say on money talks we've been chatting about well before it be sort of came on everyone's radar and that is cyber security and we did that by talking with ian patterson he's a Pluralock Security. He's the CEO there, but uh, we've always called on Ian because obviously they're in that business and it's good to get sort of, I, I hate the cliche, like an insider, but we're really talking about someone who works in it every day. So Ian, thanks very much for taking the time. I mean, there's such a big, uh, a lot to talk about, but I want to talk about one thing actually about Pluralock to start with is you guys were telling us about an acquisition you made right at the outset. I just looked at the financials that came out of that and it's a monster success. I mean, you must be, you know, somebody's patting themselves on the back at Pluralock. Tell, just give me the quick update on that. What did you buy? Why did you buy it? Because you're just nothing but a big investor, if you know what I mean. You're doing it at a corporate level, but we're talking to a lot of people who do it on an individual level. Obviously, you're looking at the opportunities in that cybersecurity space. Well, thank you, Mike, and it's, and it's great to be back. You're absolutely correct. We executed on our M&A strategy earlier this year. Um, Pluralock started as a software company in Canada, and we really have uh, global ambitions. And so we made our first acquisition a defense contractor in Los Angeles. 
company called Aurora. And so we acquired them last year. They did approximately 30 million, uh, excuse me, 28 million US dollars in revenue. And our Q2 uh, earnings, which just came out a few weeks ago, were the first uh, set of financials to reflect that new acquisition. And so I'm pleased to say that revenue uh, grew to 8.6 million for the quarter. So really great success. And I think also really bucking the trend of uh, the usual Canadian software story that you know, you, you, you try and build something and uh, and hope to eventually get acquired by an American company. I think we're really doing the opposite. We we have much grander ambitions, and so we've opted to uh, to be to do the acquiring instead. Well, again, and I'm looking at an industry that's uh, the pertinence or the relevance continues to seem to grow to me on a daily basis. I mean, people who don't even give a darn about any of this stuff know about hacks. You know, they, they, they've heard the odd story about crypto problems. Uh, they've heard stories, uh, you know, like the, the poly network. That was a, a recent hack that, of course, grabbed my attention. What was it last month? About $600 million, $611 million dollars. It was sizable. Polyon, uh, or the Poly Network, I should say, was was an attack um, that hit the news. And you're right; it was it was over six hundred million dollars worth of digital assets that were stolen. And then, uh, for for one reason or another, eventually some of it got returned as well. So, uh, you know, quite quite an unusual story. But I think really what this shows is that not only digital finance, but really finance in general is underpinned by security. In other words, you can't have a functioning market unless you have trust and safety and you know who the other counterparty is you're dealing with, that you you can be assured that if you pay for something, you will eventually get it. And so I think that that's why we're seeing such uh, such an emphasis when when these attacks do take place that look, you know, they they cause people concern about the adoption of cryptocurrencies. And by the way, the same is true of traditional finance as well. Uh, there was a report recently that, that came out uh, indicating the Bank of America on their own spends over one billion dollars on security, just Bank of America. Um, and with JP Morgan also indicating that they spend over 600 million a year uh, on security efforts. So any way you cut it, security is a really big deal for finance. And it's absolutely. And I'm really glad you brought that that aspect up. It doesn't matter where you are in finance. There's lots of stories out there. And as you say, that's where the growth is. So that's where the opportunity for investors or companies like Pluralock are, uh, you know, because of this. But I, I do sense also that there's some newness to uh, digital finance and cryptocurrencies and people aren't as familiar. So sometimes they're Radar is, is, is very acute when they hear stories about that. I mean, am I safe trading this way? As you say, hey, if I bought an asset, how safe is it? And just address that for a second. First of all, are my fears overblown or is this something that uh, really should be part of the equation when I'm looking for an investment? Well, for better or worse, I think you're preaching to the choir here. Um, I mean, mean, Pluralock started uh, as a cybersecurity company, but we're really focused on identity of people. And you'll recall, and certainly the listeners from from our previous exchanges will recall, the Pluralock's AI capability is really focused around identifying the person on the device. And so we do that using the way that you type on the keyboard, the way that you move your mouse as a form of identification. And then with that identification and authentication, we can then uh, apply a level of trust to whatever you're doing. And so whether that is uh, working in in an office building, whether that is um, doing doing work online with with finance or with others, 
that the intent here and behind everything that we do at PlorterLock is around enabling trust for those downstream activities. Now, as you get into uh, industries or sectors that are newer, that don't have as much infrastructure in place, and I think crypto and, and, and decentralized finance is a great example of this, what you're seeing is an absence of those traditional safety guardrails, if you will. And so there's, there is concern. There is concern around, look, if I, if I do this trade, am I trading with the right person? Is it going to be safe? Is it going to be there next year, next month, et cetera? Um, and so even, uh, you, you know, prior to the, the current wave of, of crypto, we saw a lot of concern with, with the, um, the exchanges, right? We saw this with, uh, uh, you know, Mount Gox back in the day with, with the original kind of um, Bitcoin exchange hack where assets that were placed in an exchange maybe weren't actually as safe as, as they would have been if they were placed in a traditional bank. Right. And so I think that the, that security and crypto really are tied hand in hand um, and you can't have one without the other. Well, and then I just uh, let people know on Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 12 Mountain, you're doing a webinar and that people can just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and they can sign on because you're going to be talking about, you know, some of the other like you've done a wonderful job here. just sort of giving us the lay of the land here and obviously uh, you're putting into practice with plural lock exactly what you're telling us as investors uh, but it just seems to me there's and why we're talking about this right now is because there's such an opportunity for investors because this is as you just uh, described an incredible growth growth area well you're absolutely right and i think even cybersecurity just on its own is estimated to be over a trillion dollars of spending over a five year period and so you know the the joke in in uh, uh, in with with startups and entrepreneurs is is you always say look if we can only get one percent of that market right well you know we'll, we'll be a huge success and I think cybersecurity is certainly one of those markets that there is a tremendous amount of opportunity and by the way it, it's very fragmented as well uh, part of what we're seeing uh, in terms of the market dynamics is that there's no clear winner take all when it comes to cybersecurity um, it's very fragmented it's very fractured and that's really why we think that it lends itself really well to uh, more of a growth through acquisition or roll-up strategy, um, which ultimately is is what Pluralock is focused on. That's that's how we intend to grow in addition to our organic efforts. So bottom line, we see cybersecurity as just a, a tremendous market to be in. It's it's one that we're excited to be working in every day. Um, and, and I think the other thing to keep in mind too is that as a as a, an investor, it's difficult to get access to cybersecurity opportunities. I think what you see a lot of times is that cybersecurity companies will typically stay private for, for a very long time, then only go public at a much later stage. And so Pluralock really represents an exception to that rule where we've opted to go public very early. And so as a result, present an opportunity for, for folks to, to um, uh, you know, look at us on more of an emerging uh, basis. Well, as I say, I want to invite people to go and listen to the webinar, watch the webinar. Uh, you go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and presto, you can get there. You got to sign up though, because uh, the, the platforms for the webinars just can't handle that many people. But it's uh, this coming Tuesday, uh, September 21st, 11 a.m. Pacific uh, uh, noon mountain time. Uh, and I, I just think, as I say, this is an area that investors have to be aware of. Uh, and by the way, the symbol for Pluralock is P-L-U-R dot V, P-L-U-R dot V. Um, as I say, Ian, great stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time. Ian Patterson, CEO of Pluralock Security. Ian, thank you. Thanks, Mike. 
Let's go live to the trading desk now. I got Victor Adair with me. Hey, Vic, I got a couple of things on my radar to this week, and I'm going to start with energy because uh, I'm looking at the link with the Canadian dollar, but I'm also looking at the price we're paying at the pumps right now, which I know is not all crude oil. You know, it's refinery issues, it's taxation, but let's start there. Well, where you start is, I mean, crude oil right now is about $72 a barrel on WTI. We hit a high of $76 back in July. So crude's, crude's a little lower than where it was. The interesting thing is, though, gasoline prices are now higher than where they were in July. The reason for that is some of the refineries have been shut down on the Gulf Coast and demand has been there for gasoline. There's, you know, the, the, the hurricane made an impact. If you want to talk about other things in, in energy, I mean, you, you look at uranium, which has raced away to the upside. Natural gas has raced away to the upside. In North America, it has gone absolutely ballistic in Europe. I mean, I think UK gas prices have doubled from where they were last year. Electricity prices all across Europe are are, are at highs here. I think all-time highs, but I, I, I'm not sure on that. So let's just say they're really high. Energy is a hot topic, and that fit, that feeds into the inflation story as well, of course. You've got inflation with higher food prices, higher energy prices, and higher shelter prices. These are three things that really impact the lower income folks. So, you know, inflation is an issue. So all of these things are interrelated, as I keep saying. There's not one market that, you know, exists in splendid isolation. Well, and as I say, I mean, it's one of those things that's so direct. I mean, go to the grocery store, uh, you know, especially transportation prices. I think uh, the StatsCan said transportation prices were up around 9% compared to last year. That's just transportation. Gasoline was up 32% compared to last year. But of course, if your tr- transport costs go up, every other good goes up. So it's, as you say, this, you know, when you look at inflation, you know, I just think of my wallet, you know, uh, for example, 100 bucks worth of gas last year for the same hundred bucks, I get 68 bucks worth of gas this year. And as you say, those oil prices. Uh, the other thing though, Vic's interesting is at the Outlook conference, Joseph Schachter said he was looking for hundred dollar oil. And I think uh, Greg Weldon agreed with that. They were pushing it out into that sort of 224, uh, 225 timeframe. I'm hearing a lot of analysts bringing that way forward now that they could be looking at $100 oil. And I, I think that's probably reflected in the momentum, at least, uh, of crude. I think those really higher prices, let's say $100 is, is higher in the future, were largely based on the lack of capital expenditure to find new mm-hmm. oil to you know maintain inventories. Uh, but now it's it's sort of a supply demand issue, just you know at the pump that sort of thing. You know all of these kind of concerns have been really feeding into the stock market. You know we had the Toronto stock market and the Nasdaq stock market both hit all time highs last week. The markets, the Dow, by the way, hit an all time high maybe five weeks ago. The the broad market indices are down maybe two or three percent here. And yet the the bearishness, the, the worries, the people that are saying, oh, you know, we got troubles here. A lot of things are going wrong, has really jumped higher on a, on really a very, very modest price decline in the major indices. But there's a lot of bears out there that are rattling the uh, the bars of their cages. That's for sure. Uh, let's I want to talk about we just talk about energy prices sort of bumping up and especially as you say, natural gas, uh, gasoline prices are bumping up energy, you know, oil rather. Sorry. Okay, let's talk about something going the other direction. Let's talk about gold for a minute. 
Yeah, gold right now, you know, it's really very much a function of the U.S. dollar. I know there's always been a historical correlation between gold and the U.S. dollar. Basically, if the U.S. dollar is strong, gold is weak and vice versa. In the past couple of years, gold, I think, gained a lot of, of oomph to the upside as interest rates were falling and falling, particularly real interest rates were, were negative. So, you know, th- there was no opportunity cost to tying your money up in gold. But lately, gold has been struggling. I think we're, we're down about $80 an ounce over the last couple of weeks. We're down $150 from the highs back in, in June. And, you know, the silver market is even softer. But if you were going to say lay the blame somewhere, the blame is uh, the U.S. dollar is strong here against all of the other currencies. And that's just not good news for gold. You know, but I'm thinking you know, it's really interesting, the difference between you being a trader and uh, someone like myself who's sort of a longer term positional investor. Because it's funny, I look at that silver close at about 21 bucks, whatever it was, and I start going, OK, so should I be accumulating here? Because I'm not afraid of the trend where on, on your side, you're looking at and saying, well, look at that short term trend. It's down. Uh, and it's just interesting to hear you talk about those things because it, well, it is a very different approach. As you always say, match what you're doing with the time frame you're doing in it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You've got a longer term time frame than me. I'm looking at silver down 20 percent or six dollars, I guess, since I don't know, mid somewheres in the summer. Here's another thing on gold, though. And that is the gold shares, the GDX, which is an ETF for gold shares. We're at an 18 month low. You know, and some of the major gold mining companies, their stock is really down from the highs that they had. If you're a long term investor and you can, you know, withstand that kind of, I would call it pain. You know, you buy something and it goes down. It's kind of a, a pain. Um, well, okay, maybe you like it, but for me, I, I, I just see that, you know, the, the, the trend here has been weaker. There's all these worries in the world, but gold hasn't been benefiting from that. And it's just, I think it's just the U.S. dollar is strong. And when the U.S. dollar is strong, it's often a sign that there's worries in the world. So capital comes to America. I mean, everybody knows America's got all kinds of problems, but it would seem that the rest of the world has got even more problems. Hence, the U.S. dollar gets a bid. Well, you heard my shocking stat earlier about the uh, poll results. Uh, My goodness, America is an angry place. And surprisingly so, you had half the Democrats saying that too, as well as Republicans with a Biden administration. But we promised a more interesting September, and we're delivering it. Vic, thanks for taking the time. You bet, Mike. Good to talk with you. Just a reminder, go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Time now for this week's Goofy Award, and it's a double header. The first deals with foreign interference in Canadian elections. So let me ask you a straightforward question. Do you think or do you have a problem with foreign governments or foreign politicians or foreign groups interfering in our elections? For most of us, I hope the answer is no. Hey, but maybe some people have no problem if the foreign actors support the party they like. Well, then it's not principle, it's about power. Or maybe, as is in the case with Chinese interference, some are on the receiving end of Chinese money. In other words, their allegiance can be bought. The question is, where do you stand? Because we had two big, blatant examples in the past week, specifically focusing on influencing your vote. First up, the Communist Party of China directly threatened Canada if they elected a conservative government. 
As one top journalist in the country, Terry Glavin states in quotes, Beijing wants a liberal re-election so bad it's threatening Canadians with retaliation if they vote conservative. How is this not an election issue? Imagine if Moscow had come out and said, vote Trump or else, end of quote. But it's not just the Chinese. I mean, former President Barack Obama this week thought that Canadians couldn't do without his voting advice. Maybe not a surprise given former Defense Secretary Bob Gates, who served in the Obama administration, stated that Obama always thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. While Mr. Obama is quoted as saying to his staff, I can do every one of your jobs better than you can. Well, so no wonder he thinks Canadians need his voting advice because, well, I guess he's smarter than all of us. Now, at the risk of inciting the ire of the CBC or Rosie Barton or Gerald Butts, you know what? I don't need his help. I don't need the help of Xi Jinping. And I don't think you need my help. Just inform yourself of the track record, the history, the basics of economics and finance and other subjects that are your priority or top concerns, and then make your choice and vote. But speaking of the fundamentals of economics, let me point out the next goofy. It's a common mistake made by politicians. Specifically, I'm talking about corporate taxation. Come on, been a popular subject during the campaign, but, you know, we don't need to put our dunce caps on for this one. Let me ask you a question. When your property tax bill comes, does your house pay it? Or do you, even if it's a mansion? When you fill up at the gas pump, does your car pay the gas taxes? As well-known Laval University economist Stephen Gordon states, corporations may be big and they may be profitable, but they cannot be wealthy. They're a form of wealth. Claiming that wealthy corporations pay corporate income tax makes as much sense as claiming that rich buildings pay property taxes. So the point, I mean, go ahead. Yes, if you want to push raising corporate taxes, but please understand they're paid by individuals, individual shareholders. Every member, every member of a pension plan because they own stocks. And as the research makes crystal clear, you know who else pays? Workers. They pay in the form of lower wages. As they say, I don't care where you stand on the issue, but please understand it when politicians stand up and start talking about corporations paying tax. They don't. They can't. That's all the time I have this week. Hey, I'm really thrilled that you joined me. Remember to go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and Money Talks Tweet, uh, Michael Campbell's Facebook, and join us on Instagram. I can keep you up to date. Sometimes I feel like I'm doing it all day, like an hourly basis, but we will keep you up with the latest. And go out, take some time, maybe learn about the issues, and I hope you go out and vote. Have a great weekend. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.